has helped me when I arrive in the cabinet. You're right. It's not only law uh, at all because it's more. But it's it almost goes in the other way. I think when DG Lamy arrived and all this, he had the background of the commission, mm. quite sophisticated developed legal system. He was a bit surprised by the WTO sort of legal system. But I think initially, at least, he didn't realize the importance or as much of uh, the jurisprudence and the appellate body case law. So, for instance, I remember one thing he said. I mean, these were not his words, but... Oh, the hack, there's nothing on TRQ in agriculture in the GATT. Are there rules about TRQ or something like this? So, of course, there's almost no rule. There's only Article 13 of the GATT. And by then I came, I said, oh, well, there's no rule, but there's a lot of banana uh, appellate body statement on TRQ. How do you run them, allocate them? So, I think that my legal background proved quite... I think useful, maybe arrogant, but appreciate it because it's very difficult to really manage the substance of trade. And DG Lamy was polit political and manager, but he also enjoyed and would jump and go deep into substance. You cannot do that fully uh, here, uh, at least at the time, without a certain knowledge of the case law because the case law has qualified and expanded provisions. So yes, you're right that being a lawyer and then five years in Lamy and then another 10 years in dispute, I see very much the distinction in the different role. You're listening to the Rodolfo Rivas Project. My dad has had big conversations with other people around the world and here in Geneva. He loves it and he's all crazy about it. Remember to have fun listening to it. The Rodolfo Rivas Project. I am Rodolfo Rivas, and this is my podcast. Thank you for listening. My guest is Professor Gabriel Marceau, Counselor for Research on Legal Policy at the World Trade Organization. Gabriel is a Canadian national and an institution at the WTO, where she has been since its inception. I have known Gabriel for many years, but this is the first time we had an extended conversation, and I really enjoyed it. During our conversation, she talked about how she got interested in law, and how this eventually led her to international law at LSE. She also shares a bit about the recruitment process when she began working in international trade, which shows the importance of perseverance. We also talked about the evolution of the WTO, which she has witnessed firsthand throughout her career at, career at Legal Affairs, the Office of the Director General, and now focusing on research and legal policy. There are some parallels in the work she has done and the objective of this podcast, which we discuss when addressing some of the motivations behind the book A History of Law and Lawyers at the GATT WTO and her project chronicling stories around the creation of the WTO, which is available at wtocreation.org. Lastly, we discuss what she believes is the ongoing transformation of the WTO, which is evolving and embracing its reform across various areas motivated by the new Director General tackling the pandemic, embracing the private sector, and the ongoing changes in dispute settlement. It was an insightful and stimulated conversation. It was an excellent opportunity to talk to her, and I hope you enjoyed it um, as much as I did. Stick around. Please let us know by liking, subscribing, and or reviewing if you enjoyed this conversation. It really helps. The Rodolfo Rivas project keeps growing, and we have great plans. Spreading the word is greatly appreciated. The more, the merrier. The Rodolfo Rivas project is available on all platforms or wherever you get your podcast. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. 
The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed here belong to the individual sharing them and do not necessarily represent the views of their employee. Hello, Gabriel. Uh, thank you for accepting my invitation to this conversation. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be with you now. I, I just interviewed your, your successor at the Society of International Economic Law. So now <laughs> I'm interviewing. You are successing him in this interview. Thank you. <laughs> um, well, I, you've been working in trade for a long time, but before we get into that, I just want to hear a bit about how you got into law. What, what was it uh, that got you into law? I decided to go into law um, because <clears throat> it's a good question because at the time I hesitated. I didn't know how to reach the goal I had, but I wanted to do things more fair. I was already sensitive about justice and I thought, you know, I'd like to improve things. Was, was this because of like something that you saw at home or was it just like your own? Uh, you're quite good. I think um, my parents divorced. Uh, I was fairly young uh, in a small city, Quebec City at the time when you didn't have that many. And I thought this was um, an occasion of um, experiencing some unfairness. Okay. It was more personal. But um, this, and then I became also aware of situations in some developing countries, which I was not younger. And I think these two sort of private unfairness and broader unfairness in society, I thought I'll do something. And maybe if I'm a lawyer, it will help. Things were not clear and I didn't think about international affairs, but I had uh, at the time also friends who were going there and it I thought it's a good start. I never thought I would necessarily end up being a lawyer, but I thought it's a good study to understand, you know, the rules. And I still think it can be a great basis of if you don't want to be a lawyer. Actually, that uh, that you're mentioning is pretty common. And the people that I've talked to, they always hint at something that they saw early in their lives that they wanted to make a difference. So I can see a That's common it. thread there. That's it. Yeah. And uh, so then you eventually you decided to go to law school. Yes. with all these uh, interests. And early in law school, I think that um, when you're in law school, the idea is to sample many types of law studies. Like they had like a, what, what, did you rem what do you remember enjoying? I remember the first year in law school, I didn't like it. <laughs> it was theoretical and it was not what I expected. Is it common or civil law? A civil law, civil I, law. I studied in Quebec City. Uh, and uh, I even stopped. So I did a year and a half of the law degree and then I stopped. I thought, no, this is not for me. But I didn't know exactly what to do and I knew what I didn't like, this sort of too academic disconnected. It didn't get me. Mm. So I stopped and for winter, that is after three semesters, after a year and a half for winter, I did some babysitting, I helped a friend they were building a house, different things. And then I decided, I changed university in Quebec. 
There was this University of Sherbrooke. Sherbrooke is a town between, close to the U.S. border, okay. and it's a small university with a co-op system known for being sort of modern and avant-garde and uh, a, a campus where 70-80% of the students live on the campus because it's such a small town with a big university. So, And there it changed uh, the beginning of the transformation of my life. What do you think was the... I what sparked the change? The change was in part the campus, very active life. So I was a uh, journalist and all sorts of activities. And I also started um, studying international law, public okay. international law and constitutional law. These sort of law that are more conceptual, yeah. which is still what I love today. And uh, But still then, international was not so much there. I finished. I like very much at the time fiscal matters, taxes, as I still do today. Uh, and then I finished. Then I went to Ottawa. This is where things started. I went to Ottawa because in Canada, in Ottawa, you can do both the civil law bar and the common law bar. And Ottawa being the capital, there's a lot of conferences, a lot of associations. So I was, I got very much involved in all sorts of group and met uh, visitors, foreigners, experts, and became more sort of sensitive to all people from, you know, different places. And it was the beginning. I didn't do at all international things because after the bar in Canada, you need to practice a little bit, which I did in Montreal and Quebec City. And then I started a Canadian practice in a law firm. I got married. Um, and I was doing a lot of labor, other labor things. law, yeah, labor law mm. for unions and um, <clears throat> against union, in fact, not for <laughs> together with, I should say. <laughs> uh, I also got my start in labor law. Uh, really? I think it's pretty, pretty interesting field of law. Very much, and I still love very much trade and labor yeah. issues. So, uh, so normal life. I worked for five years. And then I um, separated with my uh, husband. And uh, then I thought, my father, in fact, said, you should go in Europe for a year to study. It's going to change your mind, which I did. I went uh, to LSE for uh, LLM for a year. And this is really where... Um, it was international law that you studied? Yes, international law. And I met... Rosalind Higgins, the first woman judge at the ICJ. She was my teacher for two of my four classes. And it's in the context of that also another friend, um, Bernard Cola, sort of um, introduced me to, he started a Society of International Economic Law. He encouraged me and I came to Geneva in a student tour. Mm -hmm. And uh, this was 89, because I started at LSC in 88. Mm -hmm. And during that visit, this is where the turning point took place for me. <laughs> during that visit, I came visited the GATT. Yeah. Uh, and then I met Hans-Peter Werner, who used to be at the press office here. And he, we chat and he tells me, I tell him I'm doing the studies in London, LLM and then PhD. And I tell him that um, I like dispute settlement. He says, oh, there's a new, in GATT, now we have a new division legal affairs and the staff is involved in assisting in disputes and it's brand new and blah so i thought oh wow 
That's what I'd love to do. Can you imagine being at the table with the judges in international dispute? So this is when I decided to do something that would bring me back here. But how to do this? Because I have no contact, no family connections, how to do this? So I decided to do a PhD in London and to take a topic that would allow me to prove that, prove myself. So the topic I picked was looking at seven, six free trade agreements and how they phased out anti-dumping within the free trade agreements and replace that with uh, competition rules. A pretty technical topic. Yeah, and it was, uh, I suggested an international code of competition. So when I finished my PhD, I was very lucky because then it started being an issue. Yeah. Competition. It disappeared and now it's back, but at the time. So I was extremely lucky because I did this PhD and it was published by Oxford University Press, which at the time was not done so much. Now it's more common. And I applied for a job here, which was my dream. I was refused. I applied for a job in rules. And then I reapplied for a job here. And what I'm told, one day I receive a call. I finish my PhD. I go back to Quebec City, a bit discouraged. Yeah. What am I going to do with all these studies? And I get a call in June from the GATT Secretariat. You applied for this post. It was a very high post. I didn't know the post. We have downgraded the post and we would like to meet you for an interview if you're willing. So, of course, I will always remember I come to Geneva. I go up the stairs of the main building and I go to this interview with uh, Frieda Rossler, who was then the director of legal affairs. He became afterwards the head of ACWL. Oh, okay. He had been there for 20, 30 years. So he asked me all sorts of questions at the time about the tuna U.S. dispute that was then starting, the very first one. And I didn't know the answers. <laughs> and he asked me about this case and this other thing, and I kept saying, I'm sorry, I didn't read this, I don't know. <laughs> so, <laughs> Frieda Rosler at some point, very, very blue eyes, looks at me and says, why should I hire you? So I will always remember, because I thought, I have to, I have to get this thing. So I told him, well, it's the dream of my life and I think I have a mission. He giggled a little bit. He said, fine. Afterwards, he said, well, you know, you were there. All the other candidates had government pushing me. I was alone. The only woman, he had three men in the division. He just thought, let's do it, give her a chance. I will always be grateful to Frieder, of course. And I think this is a good um, lesson, if I can say from life. I had a dream working here, and as I said, no connection. So I sort of prepared and prepared with this PhD. There was, of course, drops of luck because there was a post and I came. This is life, isn't it? A mixture of your dedication, your devotion, your dreams, investment, a bit of luck, and then you jump. Yeah, it's true. And I'm really glad to hear this story because people constantly ask me, how, how do you find a job in the WTO or any organization? For everyone, it's different. But I think that what your story shows is that you have to persevere. Yeah. You have to persevere and you keep on trying. And I like what you say because you know now that in addition to working at the WTO for the last 20-some years. I'm professor at university, and we may talk again about that, but that's very important in my personal life. But at the moment, you have all the young people. Um, my students have between, I don't know, 23 
and 30. With COVID, it's tough. It's yeah. tough for them. Uh, the depression, also the potentials. But what I try to keep repeating almost each time, each week when I start my class is what you just said. I say, you have to persevere. I know it's stupid. It's unfair. There are other unfairness. You know, if you're born in a concentration camp, it's unfair also. But that if you keep and keep, you know, the wind turns sometimes and you'll have your luck. So I deeply believe in that. And I think that, like you rightly say in your interview, this was your mission. I can see it is your mission. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's true. And so I think it's true for everyone. I don't mean to say... Because me, I do exactly what I was dreaming of doing. And I have to tell you, I live um, in Ovi, on the other side of yeah. the lake. And I walk every morning around the lake, which is beautiful. Yeah, and it's I a beautiful every walk. Every morning, I think, God, I'm lucky. Yeah. I come, I manage to get this job. I mean, there are lots of things I don't have. But this, I'm lucky. And it's really a pleasure. But I know that other people end up doing something they had not planned. And it's also wonderful. Yeah. Uh, but me, it's just that I, it was sort of my priority. And that also that you mentioned is true. Like sometimes I just sit in, in front of the lake and say like, I'm just lucky being here. Yeah. Walking well, okay. Geneva is also beautiful. But what is extraordinary here, uh, and I think you don't even have that in New York, although it's very international, is the number of international organizations, all the international civil servants, the quality of the people who meet and discuss in a small town. Because me, I go teaching every Thursday at lunchtime. To University of Geneva. Geneva. Mm. Just for um, an hour and a half. But, you know, I could not do that if I was in New York and I had to cross two hours the town. Yeah. So the small sort of dimension of the city and its international sort of approach to everything uh, makes it, to me, the best place on the planet to be with the mountains close and all this. And you, you, you got your job, was it legal affairs you said? Yes. How was that? Uh, because this was also at the beginning and the transition from, was it before the, the WTO? Yes, I arrived in September, 11 September 94. So I'm glad you mentioned this because for a, a legal student, because I was finishing from law, the transition from GATT to the WTO. How was that? Wow, it was extraordinary <laughs> because it was, so you have the transition simple where GATT sold all the uh, furniture and the computers to the WTO, all the transition, but also killing the Tokyo codes because uh, they had made a deal on WTO, but nothing around had been cleaned. Uh, and the beginning of the applet buddy. And during that period also, it was a negotiation of the code of ethics, the rules of conduct, because the U.S. said, I will agree to select AB members, but only if they're obliged to follow ethical rules. And Frieda Rosler put me there as secretary. This was my only experience of negotiation, but again, extraordinary experience, because when you talk about ethics, you really face a cultural differences in action. Yeah. Uh, where, for instance, and I'm too quick, but the U.S. would insist on quite detailed statement to be made by the judges or the panelists, where other cultures said, well, what does it change? And uh, discussions such as, yes, but if the secretariat, because secretariat is also subject to the same uh, rules on independence, no conflict. If a secretariat kisses um, a party, Uh, there's no conflict, would say Latinos, where the Americans would say, no, this should 
maybe cause a presumption of there's something weird. <laughs> Should the secretary be disqualified? So then you saw differences and it was extremely useful and rich experience to start with because it really plunged me because there was a lot of stress. The appellate body was coming and the difficulty in this negotiation on code of ethics is that India was saying textile disputes should also and disputes in the textile monitoring body should also become subject to those ethics rules and independence of judge. And of course, you can imagine the rich countries said, no, no, textile monitoring body, we have our representative there. Ethical rules cannot. At the end, uh, India, who opposed the adoption of this set of rules of conduct, constantly blocking consensus the way India does it now in other areas, India block and block and won its point. Textile monitoring body became subject to the same rules on independence, a different dispute challenge mechanism, but still the same substantive rule. All the people in the textile monitoring body said this is when things started changing because those who were there had to sign I will remain neutral. So even those who represented the interest of US or EU, it, it affected the way they behaved. So this was a unique negotiation, my only one. So, and it took place during that period, that is between September and January, the transition. So there's nothing more fascinating for an international student then this sort of transition doesn't happen often. Yeah, and when when the WTO started and you were like amongst the first staff, like how how did the the work, the regular day-to-day -day work, how was it informed? Was it something that came directly like in-house or was it, because we're in Geneva and there's other international organizations, was there like some cross-pollination between the practices in other organizations or was something that was done entirely here? To me, it was entirely here, but my sensitivity to other organizations, and it's very important in the context of international trade, as you know, uh, because the WTO has 200 working relationship with uh, 200 IGOs. Uh, this came later on when I was working in Lamy's cabinet as his legal advisor, and he was quite keen on uh, governance and coherence and trade and labor and all these things. So at that time, we worked at setting up the first web page on international organization. And I helped, I mean, I was in the cabinet, but helped the division here, external relations. And we discovered what I just said earlier, that uh, although there's no observer and all this, or not that many observer in the WTO, we do have working relationship with at least at the time 200 secretariat. So then you realize, wow, we are interconnected, you know. So yes, I worked a lot on this and it's a topic I like in my academic writings. And this is something I learned um, a bit later on after, as I said, 2005, 2010, when I was in the cabinet of DG Lemmy. Uh, you worked for many years in legal affairs and then you made uh, the jump to the cabinet of the DG. How was that changed? Because I think that maybe this is my perception, but as lawyers, we usually like think like lawyers across everything. And I think that sometimes that may come in the way of other things because here the work that we do is not entirely law. It has many aspects. It also is diplomacy. It's relationships, it's economics, it's many things. 
and, yeah. and that's that's something that for me personally because I'm also a lawyer I, I had to switch off and it had to come with a realization that well sometimes it's not all about like what's law I fully agree Uh, I'm a great, I'm quite pragmatic. I'm a great believer, believer in second best and third best. So um, this has helped me when I arrive in the cabinet. You're right. It's not only law uh, at all because it's more. But it's, it almost goes in the other way. I think when DG Lamy arrived and all this, he had the background of the commission, mm-hmm. quite sophisticated developed legal system. He was a bit surprised by the WTO sort of legal system. But I think initially, at least, he didn't realize the importance or as much of uh, the jurisprudence and the appellate body case law. So, for instance, I remember one thing he said. I mean, these were not his words, but oh, the hack- there's nothing on TRQ in agriculture in the GATT. Are there rules about TRQ or something like this? So, of course, there's almost no rule. There's only Article 13 of the GATT. And by then I came, I said, oh, well, there's no rule, but there's a lot of banana uh, appellate body statement on TRQ. How do you run them, allocate them? So I think that my legal background proved quite, I think, useful, maybe arrogant, but appreciated because it's very difficult to really manage the substance of trade. And DG Lamy was polit- political and manager, but he also enjoyed and would jump and go deep into substance. You cannot do that fully uh, here, uh, at least at the time, without a certain knowledge of the case law, because the case law has qualified and expanded provisions. So yes, you're right that being a lawyer and then five years in Lamy and then another 10 years in dispute, I see very much the distinction in the different role. But I think it's very good to have different exposures. Yeah. Uh, and, and they don't, to me, they're not in contradiction. They're different angles. Yes. And the one thing I love the most in the cabinet, and I missed it afterwards, and now I still do it in my academic writings, is this global perspective of things and uh, the, the relationship between international organization and when you start thinking of trade and labor and different things. And you know the WTO principle that says if a government complies with an international standard negotiated outside, it's presumed WTO consistent even if it restricts trade. This, if you start looking at, oh, with how many, how many organizations or standardizing body have standards that could be applied by WTO member, restrict trade, and could have impact. So this sort of appreciation I developed uh, thanks to my experience in uh, DG Lamy's cabinet. This was also an amazing experience. So that you, like, I think that the fact that you've seen the organization from different um, points of view, legal and also like a bit more like management, uh, what would you call it? Like, like what, what do you think this brings to your like, understanding of where we are right now in the WTO? Um, I think it has uh, improved my understanding generally. Huh? These are more political experience and different experience. And it's interesting your question because now, today, since May 2020, I'm in research division. And I wanted to come here 
to try to get the best of my past experience. So it's a bit in line with your question, because I thought I did a lot of dispute. I finished my last dispute, which was U.S.-China um, Section 301. And then I thought, well, that's a nice way to end. <laughs> I did, depends on how you count, because I had minor role in some dispute, more important than others, but about 30 disputes. And I thought, now it's time to go somewhere for my last five years and try to put all this and conceptualize and write. And so, to go back to your question, one of the research projects I have now that is terribly interesting, it's about IGOs, international organizations, initiatives. An initiative is an action that is taken. I categorize them and we look not only, but it can often take place in times of crisis, where an IGO does something that it never did, and that is new. Uh, and I'm not even going into, is it within the mandate, outside the mandate? This I don't care. It is the IGOs responding to a need, and the response given by the IGO is a response that states could not give, even together. It's only the IGO with its forum governance who can as the WTO did, for instance, with its TPR during uh, the pandemic now, yeah. uh, others, uh, WHO, there, there's a long list. We've uh, identified so far about 50 of those initiatives, including the IMF, years back when the first conditionality was used. It was not in the treaty. It was sort of tried and then eventually codified. So. The, the time with Lamy, all my experience uh, in dispute settlement, sort of to me, made me think I have to look at the situation with some broader perspective yeah. and not only think about it, but write about it and do research project. So here I work on this project. Again, it's different internationalization. I work a lot conceptually on JSI. You okay. know JSI, these subgroup. These are very complex issues from an institutional sort of logic, legally, but it's fun. because, uh, So, uh, yeah, I think it has helped me. Now I'm older, uh, more mature. Wiser, wiser. <laughs> I hope a bit wiser. <laughs> but all this made me, uh, what you just said, I think a bit wiser. And um, actually, one of the books that I remember, I think you edited the book. You were like the coordinator. I don't know. It was uh, called the, the Lawyers of the... Yeah, History of Law and yeah. Lawyers. I yes. really enjoyed that book because I think... And actually, what I'm doing here is I want to give a bit of the other side that sometimes you don't get to hear uh, or you cannot read because it's not available anywhere. But in your book, it is. Uh, how did this project come about? The project came about because it was going to be the 20th anniversary of legal affairs. Yeah. And I started uh, the, with the idea, oh, we should go, a bit as you do, to the old ones. So started doing research and relocating the first head of legal affairs and all that. Then I thought, um, yeah, let's make the history of that. First with all the legal directors and then historically and uh, I put forward a proposal. It was accepted here because this is a publication, contrary to my other publications that I'm asked to do on private time because it's outside activity. This was WTO work. Yeah. And there was uh, my young colleague, Daniel Baker, uh, brilliant, who assisted me and others. So it was... Daniel Ari Baker? 
Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yes. In fact, he's the one who did like massive amount of research and work for this book. But the book was to, with the goal, I think, similar to the one you have uh, um, now, we have this new division, knowledge on huh? knowledge. It's about historical memory, and I thought we need to keep track. Aki Linden also passed away. Quite a few people. I had done before that book. Uh, I don't know whether you ever seen it. It's also something for the 80th anniversary of Ambassador Paul Tran, who was the ambassador of the EC throughout the Uruguay realm. Mm -hmm. I ended up knowing, meeting him because his daughter did an internship and ended up staying at my place, and then we became friend. I did a website where I interviewed, like you, but with video, about 40 ambassadors and trade ministers who attended green rooms during the Uruguay realm, and I had four questions, similar to all of them. Oh. The place of agriculture, the okay. place of development, human things, because apparently at the time they were smoking, drinking, and all sorts of things <laughs> in the green room. That's why perhaps we were agreeing before and now we were not. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll send you a link of this. This is something that you did on, on your own? Like I did on my own completely, yeah, yeah. with young people, because, you know, all these people Set were up, back uh, in capital, retired in New Zealand. So I contacted, I had to contact the sort of cinema school of the place, have a young person who would go and interview the older person that used to be an expert. So some of the cuts of the videos are, but the amount of people and yeah. the amount of information that, uh, there's a B, that, is, um, that came out there on, yeah, open it, on, um, well, different things, you know, uh, the standard of review, the statements that some of those, uh, Minister Lacarte was there, John Wee, they all agreed, because people were proud of having negotiated the Uruguay round. Yes. And I remember when um, Denis Germain, when uh, the Canadian chief negotiator at the time told me, we will see, because I went to interview him, he lived in the wood nowhere in, in Quebec, it was terrible locating. I went to see him and he told me, you know, whether or not we did a good job, he was also responsible, you may have heard that story, for bringing U.S. and EU together in agriculture. No. Have you ever heard no, that? No, no, no. I'm opening a parenthesis because I did ask him, I said to him, apparently you forced this deal, huh? okay. the blue box. And all. He said, no. I said, yes, apparently you locked them in a room. He started laughing. He said, no, I lost the key. <laughs> <laughs> apparently he put them in the room, closed the window, removed the water and said, you leave here once you have a deal. <laughs> <laughs> so I think these interviews made me realize that yes, we need to memorize all these things because they're lessons to, to learn. So this was oral. So after, it's the, the same approach, which yeah. is similar to you. It's a respect for what was done, trying to see how it can inform the future. So it's the same philosophical line for me, this book in my website but I'll send it yes to I, I, really, I, I didn't know about it so I'm really interested yeah. uh, also I want to talk about uh, I was listening to a lecture that you gave at the WTI I think this week oh, earlier okay. this week you were talking because there's a lot of talk about um, WTO reform and how it's gonna reform and I think that your what you said part of what you said that correct me if I'm wrong was that you already believe that some of this reform is already taking place can you talk a bit about that? Yeah. I think that the WTO 
is changing. Huh? Already, it has been changing. So, dispute settlement. You know, we both like dispute settlement. Certainly me, I gave a lot of energy to this. <laughs> uh, is there a reform? Well, of course, the Apple body got shot. Uh, the MPIA was negotiated. Now, it hasn't been used, but it's coming, I think. So, is this future? No, it's today. So, this is just an example. I also spoke at, uh, at Bern about JSI. JSI have not been fin finalized, but they are negotiating. Pretty being actively. negotiated. Yeah. And uh, so, this is today. Huh? Look also at um, all the dimension of trade and environment and trade and climate change. When yeah. I started, we could not even talk about that. I did some pub publication that were initially blocked and all this. Now, all the NGOs would like issues to come to WTO because in a way, we have integrated environment quite a bit into our system. So our reforms... Um, taking place, certainly the health of the atmosphere in GSI negotiations, you cannot tell me that the governments there are not uh, serious in really wanting to improve the situation in e-commerce. I only follow e-commerce, but it's the same everywhere. So me, I think that, and if I look at our new DG and some of the proposals from... Uh, Ottawa Group and others, for the DG to establish links with suppliers, manufacturers, distributors of vaccine. Don't you think this is quite a reform? This is all private sector. And that, I think, would have been like unthinkable before. Unthinkable. Yeah. And what I tell everyone is I remember at the beginning when some talked about the Singapore issues, competition, investment, and India saying, no, 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 private sector, we don't want private sector here. Now, governments are on their knees for yeah. companies to collaborate and, you know, so this is reform. It's taking place. So we should stop being, I always repeat the same thing, too static. People say, this is the past and as of now, it's going to be the future and we will sort of reform in the future. I, 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 you're also a lawyer, you know what state practice is in international law. You do it once, you do it ten, you did hundred. So that's what governments are doing. I'm not saying it's perfect or it's going as well as it should or could, but I really think that reforms have started. When DG uh, Azevedo left and DG Ngozi came, uh, the reform had started because the ability body was already shut down. But um, this woman, she brings with her uh, the wind of an... Uh, and revised WTO, or what I called in Bern a new WTO. And, and this is interesting because I, I had thought about it. I hadn't had really put it in the terms that you were talking about, but like talking to people who don't deal with WTO, I tell them about the dynamic nature and the work that we're doing here. But it's, it's almost like you cannot really like put your finger on it. Like what, what is precisely because it's changing on many different aspects. Mm -hmm. But not like like collectively. No. So I, I don't know. Like uh, I, I'm really curious about this because I really want to hear your your take on it. Like what will it take to like gather all these little pieces and perhaps like bring say? them together? You say what does it take to gather and bring them together? 
I don't, me, I would not look at the situation this way because, and I think it's uh, harsh a saying, about two weeks ago, Friday, two weeks ago, we were in a panel together I was moderating. It's a Harvard uh, Kennedy School panel on the reform. And everybody, you know, had the line in DSS of reform only if there's development. Then Arsha said something and he basically explained what I was trying to verbalize, allow me to say. He said, I think that in the, in the, in the upcoming future, the WTO will not be sort of all sort of coherent and perfectly organized. You will have bits of GSI at the stage of only 40, 50. And this will grow to 100. Some will put them in their schedules. Others will just circulate statement of 60, you know, joint statement. And so the same way at the moment, the EU schedule, for instance, is a bit of a mess each time they enlarge. Well, now they've been enlarged, but still they function even if their schedule was imperfect. So he was saying, I think the future, the immediate future, and maybe leading to transformation is things a bit messy and disorganized and a, 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 a patching of bits and pieces where some are good, some are less good. And I really believe this is it. And this is what is needed. I was asked, I was um, in Switzerland, uh, Bern, uh, two days ago, for some sort of conference, and the same discussion came and about how to avoid future pandemic, how to use international law to enhance resilience of states. And I said, in my view, one, now there are many needs, one way is to stop looking at categories the same way we looked at. For instance, some people say, oh, with the pandemic, we need to adapt and adjust, so we need to go to soft law. I said, me, I don't believe in that. I think the WTO has a lot of rules as they stand, a lot of flexibility, and we proved it in this paper on disasters and WTO. We don't necessarily need to change all the rules, but we need to look at things differently. And I don't think that it's uh, the, the strict categories, soft law, hard law, because if you look at the Paris Agreement, is it soft or hard? It's soft in a way because each government does it the way it wants, but they each have a goal, they promise the goal. So how do you qualify this sort of obligation? Shouldn't we use? I said we should use more mutual recognition type thing. If you do this and I do that, we both think it's okay. In e-commerce, I think it should be used. So I think that in the future, all these efforts by some governments, GSI is one, but MPIA is another, using regular committees, for instance, CBAM being discussed in the trade and environment, but also market access and everywhere. I think it is fundamentally healthy. Disorganized and far from perfect and not coherent, and India will say, we want a mandate, we want a mandate. I don't think you need a mandate. I personally believe WTO is a permanent form of negotiation. But I think that all these little changes are pushed by some. It for me, express the fact that some countries really want to change. They may not be able to perform the change fully because there's not enough, but they push. And it's like a uh, little bird in the egg. When they want to come out of the egg, they crack one bit, they crack the other bit, 10 bits and then puff. No. So I don't think that we are yet where you mentioned, bring all this together in an organized manner, at least not now. 
But to me, the fact that we haven't reached this doesn't mean that reform is not has not started, because the fact that things are bro broken, things break, like mm -hmm. the U.S. Um, killing the absolute body and others. For me, it's the beginning of a reform. I mean, it could be negative. In a reform, you change. So when you crack things, we have a say in, in French, I'm not too sure whether it makes sense in you English. You cannot that, make an omelette. That's it. If you want to make an omelette, you, you break eggs. Yeah. Well, that's it. That's it. In a no, way. And, and it's true because it's going, but I... You saying this, I think, is one of the first uh, instances where I have heard it. Like, I haven't really... It's not something that you hear in the hallways of the WTO. No, they don't want. Well, some secretariat people are conservative. Some, because we put so much emphasis on lawyers, the rule of law and hard law, until you have hard law written down with a m mandatory binding dispute settlement, we've become spoiled and we say, oh, there's no system. Yeah. You go outside, what about human rights? You don't enforce human rights as easily as you enforce trade dispute, for instance. So I think that we have to look, change our lenses. And at least it's my view, recognize that changes have started. Yeah, and I think that that is the first step because I think it, it is happening. And like I said, I was kind of like talking about it and thinking about it, but I hadn't really put my finger in it until I heard your lecture and I was like, yeah, actually I see what she's saying. Oh, good. If you agree, then I must be right. No, no, not right, but yeah. And you know... But perhaps like when you are inside, like in the thing, you don't see it. You don't see yeah. it. And you know, international relations are also a bit disorganized on the planet. And although we say all states are equal, some are more equal than others. So when people say, oh, well, GSI, it's, you know, there's this that is not there, this that. I say, so what? Just do it. Go for it, do it. Through practice, you will refine the practice, maybe attract more people, and it'll go. I mean, that's the way customer international law evolved, no? Yeah. So I think WTO is at that stage in, its, uh, in her life, in his life, its life. <laughs> <laughs> um, you were also in, in this uh, lecture that you gave at the WTI, you were talking about the DG and how you already talked a bit, but I just want to hear your thoughts comparing like the DG now with, for example, with DG Lamy that you had like close contact and Well, I don't have close contact with the current DG. But from what you see from... Yeah, but from what I see, and who am I to say that, I, I think she does everything that she should be doing. So this, this call for, uh, you know, exchange and coordination and collaborations between suppliers, blah, blah, the setting up of, of production facilities and all this. I think she is, we are blessed. She is sent <laughs> by heaven. Yeah. Uh, she really has the energy, the direction. Now, is she like Lamy? Lamy was uh, not an economist. He loved substance, Lamy. And I think she does also. She's extremely wise politically. You know, she went to India because the Indians are difficult. Uh, she went to the U.S. She's very... So comparing... Well, she's very different from DG Azevedo, of course. Um, she's good friend with DG Lamy, and I'm, I wouldn't be surprised because they both have sort of global long-term approach to things. That's the way they solve issues, this and that. 
uh, I hope and I have a very good feeling that it'll work at the end of November, MC12. Something will come out of that. But we could be surprised because, as you know, there's a good deal of consensus. Even if you have 110 countries, WTO members, who say we love e-commerce, um, some could block even that. So I, I want to remain realistic, but I'm optimistic, and it's because of her. The amount yeah. of little things she changed already in a couple of months. Yeah, but uh, similarly, I think that she has come with many ideas that sometimes, like they tell, like the members, we all the members tell them, like, no, you cannot do that. Yeah. I don't know, like, how much more it, it can go like like this, until the point where maybe she's like, you know, like, there's nothing you can do. Yeah, well, I don't know where she was told. I know that there are lots of things she was told, maybe it, you don't do it this way. Um, there's a lot of comments about this McKenzie sort of report. Well, even if the McKenzie report is said to be disappointing by some, wanting for her to want to have this review, to me, is healthy. There's no problem. We have to give her a bit of space, but look, she arrived in March. Uh, in April, already Canada and others asked her to contact suppliers. She has done it. Yeah. So we have to see, but I can see that there could be tensions with some members. Uh, but I often, you know, members, it depends on their interests at the time. So, and especially me in dispute settlement, that's one of our role, you know, when we advise where U.S. may say X in this case, but they said Z in the other case, similar when they were in the other position. That's one of our role. So this is something, an expertise you develop. Looking at a government who says, in principle, I'm in favor of that, but this time, no, I'm not. And next week, I will. So I know that some members, there are things they don't like. There are members who are happy. But I think you need to, in order to change, there will be a few things uh, broken. Yeah, no, the omelette. <laughs> yeah, the omelette. No, no, but it's true, I think. <laughs> and I, I also curious, I mean, you talked about it over already, but I want to hear more about it regarding the, the role of the secretariat, because I think it has changed. I think the, the secretariat now, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like more proactive, like taking different approach, perhaps like trying different things to see what what works, what can provide, what can add value. How do you see this like evolving? I, I fully agree with you. And I think in Bern, I mentioned it in one of the slides, the new role of the WTO Secretariat, not only the new role of the DG with respect to the supply chains, but the new role of the Secretariat. Uh, for instance, in supply chain, we are proactive, trying to understand where the bottlenecks are and who could do what and all this. This is new. Having the Secretariat writing analytical paper for the TP for the COVID page is also exceptional. I mean, for some, you may say, yeah, what's, what's so extraordinary? These are all factual paper, but still, we never did them. It was only World Bank OECD. And um, there are already proposals. You have the Canadian proposal of uh, December 2018 on the deliberative functions of the WTO, where they talk about the role of secretariat to make an article paper, the chairperson. EU has already put forward proposal about the handling of meetings via an enhanced role of the secretariat. So I think this is there. 
Now, you also have resistance. U.S. is opposed. I mean, they like it when it, the second, but they don't need it. U.S., they run the planet. They don't need anyone, the secretariat or whatever. Uh, but you have, I was surprised, countries like I think it's Egypt, Sri Lanka, who are also worrying about secretariat initiatives. So I don't know whether they think about the little secretariat like me or the DG. But if I were DG, uh, I would just go on and keep going because I think it's the only way out. If it's a success, people will say, ah, yes, this time it's okay. <laughs> if it's a failure, she'll be blamed. But in any case, she has no choice. She has no choice. The only way to move this big elephant is probably to break a few things. And I'm optimistic. Now, I think there's a lot of comments about the Secretariat that has been maybe sleeping a bit too much for years, protecting positions um, on this way or that way. I think, again, that's a goal that developing countries, and this DG has repeated many times, uh, to have a Secretariat that is strong is, should be the first goal of the WTO. And, but if you want to have a secretariat that is strong to help members deal with issue, well, they need to have their brain running. And therefore, um, initiations of research and work of a dimension other than just taking notes. So I think governments in general, and developing countries in particular, can benefit a great deal from a strong secretariat. Uh, because it can inform them, essentially. Is it going to become like this? There will always be resistance. But you see, your question is conceptual and theoretical. Me, my answer, or you saw the slide I put in Bern, I put the web page of website. And what do you have this list of now 45, 50 secretariat paper over the last two years? Yeah. Full of information. So. One would say, oh, is it reform? It's not reform, is it? Well, me, I'll say, look, <laughs> it didn't exist before. We never <laughs> did paper. This is a web page. Call it whatever you call it. Me, I call it uh, sort of reform in coming, transformation. It's taking place. And the other thing is that this is available now. It's there. And I think that also the fact that now everything, it's more transparent. Like if, you, if you're not involved in trade, but you want to learn about it, you can, you can even attend uh, hearings in disputes in certain cases. You can come to the WTO, and I think that that was something that was not really possible before. You're right. You're right. I think that I remember when the IMF, World Bank, WTO uh, agreement, tripartite, was negotiated in '95. A great deal of what was there was to provide them, IMF World Bank, with information that was otherwise confidential. Now that everything is on the website and everything is accessible, you know, sometimes you wonder what was the, what's the use of this agreement? Yes, they meet, they should coordinate, collaborate, but access to document, you know. They have, I remember one day I said that to a guy <laughs> at one of those two big institutions, he was offended. He wanted to influence and have a view, a pass to the panel. I said, well, use an amicus curiae. He said, no, 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 we should have an institutional. I said, no, the system <laughs> has evolved. Use an amicus curiae, it's your best bet, it's quick. So 
It's again, that's my philosophy in general. Look at what is being done. Then it depends what label. Some would say, oh, this is just politics. Well, I said, maybe it's politics. But in a year, it will become slowly soft law and eventually lawmaking and then hard law. So I always look personally at things in a static manner. So just what I said, this what you said, having, for instance, dispute settlement sort of documents on the website accessible, being having a public forum, this didn't exist at the beginning of the WTO. And now These with, with the, the public forum that was available to anyone, you didn't even have to come to Geneva to do it. To me, this is reform, ongoing uh, reform. Well, I just want to, like, last question, because I, I know you're busy. Uh, you were before at uh, Transformation, from the GATT to the WTO, and now you're talking about a transformation that we are undergoing. Mm -hmm. Did you see any parallels or any lessons that we, like, should take into account from both processes? Uh, well... I mean, yes and no. I mentioned, I talked a little bit about the rules of conduct, the code of ethics, the rules on independence. This is an example of the, the UA round finishes, the WTO agreement is being ratified, and then we have four months of transition. It was a bit different because the atmosphere was very high. They had made a deal, a big multilateral treaty, and it was more about implementing and closing down than, than now. But this um, negotiation and the need, which is something additional, to me, proves that governments, even if they're very clever, their representative work hard, you always need to adapt. So for the appellate body, the U.S. was happy having an appellate body. They are the one who suggested that during the negotiation. Soon they realized, wow, we need rules on the independence of the appellate body. So this triggered, you know, much negotiation. So it's the same thing now. The fact that there are new needs, we should not be scared and say oh, we are misadapted. We should just say, okay, let's adjust. Let's adjust to the new needs that are there. So the pandemic brought new needs. I think the WTO uh, became more important than ever because people realize the pandemic is not just about masks. It's also about countries that block food and countries that block other essential goods, ventilators and others. So WTO rules are important. WTO forum is really, and this has been confirmed, a forum of governance. This is something new, if you want. And either you block and you're very rigid legal, or you say, okay, we'll adjust, we'll adapt. And I think adaptation of this sort, even if it's a bit punky, is a fundamental characteristic of the potential of GATT WTO. And there are two examples, enabling clause and the, um, uh, how do we call it, balance of payment restriction. The enabling clause, if you uh, remember, it's adopted uh, after the Tokyo round here by the ambassadors, by a simple consensus decision. And they basically amend Article 1, but they don't follow any of the rules because they want more for developing yeah. countries. And this sort of thing is formally illegal. It didn't respect the rules. But rich and poor, all governments respect it. If you ask me, was this a reform? I said, yeah, it's a reform, a form of adaptation. Is it appropriately done? <sighs> no. 
It's not the best. They should have amended. Ta, 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 ta. No, they didn't do it. But 30 years after, they put it in the year-round package, and now it's codified. And last example, if you look at the balance of payment provision, it tells you in the old GATT that as much as possible, if you have this balance of payment and you need a safeguard, you should use uh, quotas. That's the prioritize tool instruments. In the year-grade round understanding on balance of payment, they say, oh, you should use price-based measure. Complete contradiction. Why? Because government realized you need price-based are better, they're more transparent, they're more flexible than a big quota. Why didn't they amend and correct? Because now, if you ask a student, so what is the state of law on balance of payment? They will bring whatever, Article 18, Article 12 of the GATT, and then they say, oh, the understanding, oh, there's a contradiction. Is it an issue? I will tell the student, no, this is a perfect example of states that are pragmatic. They do not want to waste too much time saying, we used to say that, now this is not really this, it's rather this, they just say it, they confirm it, they do it, they apply it, now it's price-based. So I'm not saying it's a perfect example, but I'm saying in international relations and politics, government are sort of big animals. So sometimes you just break something, shift a bit the direction, slowly go, it's like a big boat. Yeah. And then you say 10 years, in 10 years, oh, do you remember when we made that turn 10 years back? But when you make the turn, you don't see it unless you fly above the boat or... Yeah. Well, um, I think that also you're pretty optimistic and you made me optimistic about... <laughs> no, <laughs> the, we share, the we share, uh, I think we share a similar passion. No, but, uh, but, but I think that sometimes I have days where I'm optimistic and some days pessimistic. But me talking too. to you about this, like it makes me optimistic about uh, the future of the WTO. Well, that's nice, I hope. <laughs> let's, let's keep being optimistic. And uh, let's cross our fingers for MC12. Yes, I hope it's a, a really good uh, ministerial conference. Well, Gabriel, it has been a pleasure talking to you. Thank, Thank you, you very much. It was an honor and a pleasure for me as well. This was the Juan Alfa Rivas Project. I hope you loved it. Can you dig?